Thank you, brothers. It's uh, lovely to be here. I've been coming to uh, America for 40 years, and I've been trying to publish Christian books for 40 years. But I wanted to start with a book review of a book you must have. I, I think that about all my books. I could do nothing else all day but tell you why you should have our books. But anyway, here's one. Preaching by Alec Mateer. Anybody have it? Oh, just, it's not all. It's good, isn't it? Uh, Tim Keller says, Alec Mateer has had a profound, formative influence on my preaching. In this book, he puts his decades of wisdom on expository preaching at the reader's fingertips. Ralph Davis says, after having read this book, I would like to start my ministry all over again. So I think there's gems of wisdom in here. Here's one. And Alex says, next Sunday, I'm preaching on such and such a text for the 19th time. Let me explain. And he shows how he engages with the text in his own heart and life. So there's only a few copies through there. I expect there'll be none very shortly. <laughs> After David's uh, lovely a helpful exposition this morning which I found very heartwarming I would like to read a, a psalm which came to my mind it's Psalm 67 which is the great Lord's Prayer of the Old Testament this psalm was sung uh, by the Westminster Assembly after they had finished their deliberations May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your ways may be known on the earth. Your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the people justly and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. Then the land will yield its harvest. And God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us. And all the ends of the earth will fear him. Sir Walter Scott, the great Scottish historical novelist, who was the first international author in English. Is there an echo of this? Yeah? Is it because that machine's too near, is it? I hope that's better. I don't know how... Uh, Whitfield could speak to 10,000 outside without a speaker. Sir Wartle Scott was on his deathbed 
in his home in Galashiels, Scotland. His, his bed was in his library where I've been. There were hundreds or thousands of books around the walls. And he said to his nurse, read the book to me. And his nurse said, what book? And he said, there is only one book. And, you know, I'm going to be speaking about literature, but all of it must be in the light of what Sir Walter Scott said, there is only one book. Four headings. Some observations on our world and culture. Secondly, how does God use literature? How has he used it in the past? And thirdly, literature in the ministry of the word that you guys are engaged in. And lastly, something that's very close to my heart, literature and the ministry of the word with children. Something about our culture then. The population of the world, when William Carey went to India, is less than the population of India today. How does that affect us? There are multitudes on our streets, in our cities, in our world, who have never heard the message that we have. They have never heard the name of Jesus. John Welsh, John, Scott, John Knox's son-in-law, in the west of France, was not sleeping at night. His wife said to him, Why are you not sleeping? He said, I have 3,000 souls to care for, and I do not know how it is with every one of them. Have you spent an hour at a deathbed See the reality. We have no time for anything these days, do we? It's Gandhi who said, there's more to life than increasing its speed. Political correctness has overcome the Western culture. Tony Blair takes with him the Bible and the Koran. One of the leading Anglican bishops said recently, I'm not sure if God exists. The leading minister or one of the leading ministers of the Scottish Parliament said, I'm glad to be a Presbyterian, but I am a Presbyterian atheist. Melanie Phillips, one of Britain's best known journalists, she writes in The Guardian, she said, I think it will soon be a crime in the Western world to be a Christian. Our children are finding it increasingly difficult to stand firm. 50% of marriages are breaking down. Pornography and evolution are on every aspect of the media. And sadly, many ministers Many of us, those of us who are in Christian ministry, are addicted to the misuse of the internet. 
Dawkins, the author of the book The God Delusion, says that the worst form of child abuse in the world today is, what do you think it is? Teaching children Christianity. Dawkins is considered to be one of the top three intellectuals in the world. He is the winner of the Michael Faraday Award from the Royal Society, the Professor of Public Understanding, and his book has sold almost two million copies in North America. And this is what he says. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character of all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. I can't carry on. That hurts me that there are people in your community and mine reading that. And I'm glad of Psalm 53 verse 1. I can say to Richard Dawkins despite his intellectual powers you are a fool. The fool says in his heart there is no God. Now, I know you're agreeing with me that that's terrible, but that's nothing in comparison to what's coming. The blurb on the back of Dawkins' book comes from Philip Pullman, who is probably, next to J.K. Rowling, the widest read children's author in the world. And he says, children must read Dawkins' book. It should have a place in every school library, especially in the libraries of faith schools. There's a battle on, friends, for the hearts and minds and souls of our people. Our children are being bombarded with materialism. It's what you get. With individualism. It's all about you. With hedonism, it's all about pleasure. I was asked by one of you here yesterday, how are you enjoying yourself? That's not what it's all about. How are you enjoying him? With relativism, it doesn't matter what you believe. You believe that, good on you. I believe something different. And what is happening in the church? Thankfully, there is growth in many parts of the world. But I fear there's a very uncertain note being declared in our community in the West. We are riddled with error. There has never been a time in my lifetime when the church in the West is under so much threat from itself. 
There's a verse in the Scottish Metrical Psalms which says, To these long desolations, thy feet lift, do not tarry. For all the ills thy foes have done, where? Within thy sanctuary. The problem is amongst ourselves. We're being challenged with being too clear and too exacting. You heard about the Puritan who was accused of that. They said to him, Sir, you're too precise, too exacting. And his reply, yeah, my God is precise. Steve Jock, who I'm going to mention twice, a leading United Kingdom evangelical, in inverted commas, has referred to our understanding of the doctrine of justification as cosmic child abuse. What is the objective of much of the church? Come to us and your financial and health and social problems will be resolved. You'll feel good. We'll help you to look good. Rather than what we are designed for. The bird is made to fly. I was thinking as Ligon was speaking the other day about something John Stott has said about the bird. The bird has two wings, truth and love, and if one's not working, the bird can't fly. The bird is made to fly, the fish is made to swim. You and I are made to glorify and enjoy God. Are we accommodating the world, its values and its pursuits? Have we lost the sense of eternity? Are you and I building up treasures on this world? I remember visiting John Stott's home. Small, unsophisticated, little flat. Beds all over the place for students. I have more furniture in any room in my house than he had. Where did all his royalties go? All went to Christian work and ministry, particularly literature. The main Protestant denominations in the UK are divided with regard to homosexuality. There's homosexuals in the pulpits of Scotland. We're all after this magic thing called consumer worship, aren't we? What is it that Eric Alexander said? If, if, if you forget all I say, remember this. This is one of my favorite expressions from Eric Alexander. It was a passing remark from the pulpit in Inverness. I'm all for consumer worship, provided you recognize who the consumer is. Yep, where are our 
Christians in our community when the ball game is on, when the beach party is on, when the holidays are coming. I'm probably upsetting some of you. I don't mind. I believe it. I agree with John Piper when he says, There's a relentless pursuit of leisure, even at the expense of the means of grace. You got it. There's a relentless pursuit of leisure, even at the expense of the means of grace. The Bible has become a recipe book. I can go to the Bible any time I need to go to it. You need your food. Well, most of you look as if you enjoy your food. (laughs) You enjoy it day by day. I, I was involved with Scripture Union UK. I was chairman of their publishing for about 10 years. And we did a survey. You probably know the results of it. Many pastors aren't spending three minutes a day with the Bible. All that we would say with, is it Jeremiah? Your words were found and I did eat it. And it became to me the rejoy and the rejoicing of my heart. Or Psalm 119, full of it. This word is my comfort. Our culture, yours and mine, is desperately searching. Again, to come to Steve Joe. This is just two weeks old. He, with Tony, Tony Campolo and Brian McLaren and a few others, have put out a statement with a commitment to help the church to re-engage with Scripture. Oh my, I said, that's wonderful. Until I read it. He said, it's time we acknowledge that the Bible is not inerrant. It's high time we acknowledge that the Bible is not fully inspired. It's high time we acknowledge that we have learned a lot since the Bible text was put together. That things have developed and evolved. We cannot place our faith in immovable statements. That's here. You you may not be hearing it. But I can tell you it's here. Right on your doorstep. How you and I need the Yorkshire farmer's prayer. Do you know the Yorkshire farmer's prayer? Keep me kept. Keep me kept. Because I cannot keep myself. Where are the temples of your cities? The shopping malls? The fitness stadiums. I had went home. And my wife was here with me, and I told her last night about Derek's fear of being in a room with men and dressing. <laughs> it put her off her sleep. <laughs> it's how we look, isn't it? 
Os Guinness had it right when he said, we're now living with a generation who would like a fit body, but are quite content with a fat mind. Francis Schaeffer, 40 years ago, said, where there is no absolute, people will only pursue their their own personal peace and affluence. The consequences will be disparity of wealth, scarcity of resources, ecological disaster, terrorism, and financial chaos. You got it? Hasn't that happened in America? The next cruise will fulfill your dreams, we're told on the advert advert since we came here. Buy the BMW and you'll be happy. Rubbish. The average child in North America is seeing 40,000 murders on television by the time he's 18. There are almost a million, there are almost a thousand suicides a day in North America. This is all rather depressing, isn't it? as we look at our culture. But remember, our Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is able to do in us and for us and with us, however small and insignificant we may seem, far exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. The fields are white and ready to harvest. There has never been a time in our lives when there are more people hungering and thirsting for meaning, for purpose, for significance. Let us tell them with every breath and by every means that Christ died for the ungodly. The most important words in the whole of Scripture. The gospel in five words. Never depart from that. Preach the word, preach the word, preach it on paper or digitally or by mouth or by audio. Get it out there. Let, as Spurgeon said, let the lion out of the cage. That's, I can speak about that as you probably gathered long enough, but that's what I see your culture and mine. How does God use Christian literature? Well, we're going to look over Wesley's shoulder. On the 24th of May, 1738, he wrote, In the evening I went unwillingly to a society in Alder's Great Street. One was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans. At quarter to nine, while he described the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart warned. I did trust in Christ alone for salvation, and he saved me from the law of sin and death. Reading a book. And that's what Wesley did, as you know, on horseback. He went on horseback round the UK reading a book. I'm not saying you do that on I-20. (laughs) 
but get your wife to drive and you, drive and you read it. Here's what Whitfield wrote when he was 16. I was 16 years old. I fasted twice a week. I prayed many times a day, but I did not know what it was to be born again. Wesley, my friend, put into my hand a book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. God showed me in that book that I must be born again or be damned. I know the place. I run to it often, holding the book in my hand and thus address the God of heaven. Lord, if I'm not a Christian, if I'm not a real one, for Jesus' sake, show me what Christianity is, that I may not be damned at last. I go there quite often. I run to that place quite often and echo these words, Lord, if I'm not a Christian, if I'm not a real one, take me there now. Hudson Taylor, as a youngster, was converted through a book. He took away a tray of tracts from his father's bookshop. As he read it, he said, if the whole work is finished and the whole debt is paid, what is there left for me to do? Led by the Holy Spirit, he fell to his knees and accepted Christ as his Savior. Now, the next paragraph, I'm not expecting you to take notes of this, and I don't think even Ligon, with his fast fingers, will be able to Twitter this one. Richard Sibbs. The Puritan wrote a book called The Bruised Reed. It was picked up by a tin peddler who gave it to a boy called Richard Baxter, who through reading it became the saintly Baxter of Kidderminster. Eventually he wrote a book, A Call to the Unconverted, which inspired a man called Philip Doddridge, who in turn wrote a book called The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul, this fell into the hands of Wilberforce, changed his life. He became the great campaigner. His book, A Practical View of Christianity, lit up the soul of Lee Richmond, whose sub subsequent book, The Dairyman's Daughter, became the chief influence in the life of Queen Victoria, but was instrumental in transforming the life of Thomas Chalmers in the 19th century, who, along with his colleagues in the Free Church, built 216 churches in Scotland and touched the world by his preaching. Books work. We publish a little book called The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. Jim Packard does the introduction, and this is what he says. I owe more to this little book than any other book apart from the Bible. Who's read Mortification of Sin by John Owen? Oh, that's a good sign. But there's still 30 or 40 who haven't. He was helped so that he could say, as Samuel Rutherford said, I put off sin or part of a sin every day. Books work when you cannot. A mother gave a book to her wayward son. His name is Ian McCaskill. The mother died. The book was sitting on the shelf. Ten years after the mother died, Ian took it off the shelf and read it. And he was converted. And his wife converted. At the same time, years after the mother had given it to him, he's now a minister in the Free Church in Scotland. What was the book? Around the Wicked Gate by C.H. Spurgeon. 
one of the great evangelistic books of all time. People will say, I don't have time to read. Well, that's nonsense too. I haven't got money to buy books. Rubbish. When did you last buy a cinema ticket or a McDonald's hamburger? Isn't it Erasmus who said, whenever I have a little money, I buy books. And if I have any left over, I buy some food. (laughs) Now, I don't think many of you guys are in that category at all. There's one or two that are a bit slimmer than you are the last time I saw. <laughs> Thomas Akempis said, If he shall not lose his reward for giving a cup of cold water to his neighbor, what shall the reward be for those who put a good book into the hands of others, open to them the foundations of eternal life? Who said, I would rather write a pamphlet than speak at 20 mass rallies. Lenin. I remember Bill Bright saying this to me. If I had to choose between writing and speaking, I would choose writing. Ralph Winter's quote, you have it on the sheets there. I'll leave that one. We had reference yesterday to John Murray. And uh, somebody said to me, I wish you would tell one or two of the John Murray stories, so I think I'll try and do that before my morning's finished. But I remember taking John Piper to John Murray's grave. And we were standing at the grave, and um, John quoted a date which wasn't on the grave. A date, I think it was 1979. I said, John, that's not when the daughter died. I know, he said. But that's the date I read Redemption Accomplished and Applied and It Changed My Life. He remembered the day. Now, a year or two later, I took John Bloom, his colleague at Desiring God, there. And John Bloom said, That man's dead, but he spoke to me. And I said, how's that? When I started to work with John Piper, John gave me that book and said, you must read it. And it changed my life. Some people have difficulty in sharing their faith. But it's easy to say, I read this book, you'll enjoy it. And this week, I'm just taking one or two things that happened this week. One of the guys in the faculty at RTS, Jackson, said to me, Alec Matier's book, it's wonderful. I use it in my class. Stephen Wright, who's here, said to me, you have five or six books from Joel Beakey, The Building on the Rock. My ten-year-old daughter is struggling a little with the oppression in regard to the Lord's Day with her colleagues. She's interested in ballet. And the ballet events are on a Sunday. Joel Beakey's books, Building on the Rock, have taken her through that. Thank you. This week, I've agreed to have J.C. Ryle's biography translated and published in China. 
I've had Little Hand Story Bible reprinted in China. I've had How Does God Change People, a book we should have done the first day we started publishing. What are conversions in the Bible? It's for children. Connie Deaver's using it. She thinks it's wonderful. And it's going into Korea. This morning, another book, Himalayan Adventures, going into French. Anyway, that's a little bit about how God uses literature. Literature in the ministry. Imagine you're a pastor in England in 1760. John Wesley is your friend, and after some years he visits you. And after listening to your preaching, he sends you a letter. Imagine getting this letter from John Wesley. You're getting this letter from John Wesley. No, not Ligon Duncan. No, John Wesley. What has exceedingly hurt you in time past and today is your want of reading. I scarce knew a preacher reads so little. Hence your talent in preaching has not increased since I heard you first ten years ago. It's lively, it's energetic, but it's not deep. There's no variety and no compass of thought. Straight talking. Reading only can supply you with this, along with meditation and prayer. Fix some part of every day for your private devotions, exercises, and readings. It's for your life, or you'll be a trifler. It's easy for me to see it. I'm not a minister. But there's a few ministers who are triflers. John Stott said, I read one hour a day, one afternoon a week, one day a month, one week a year, and all I have learned is by standing on the shoulders of others. I quoted this at the Desiring God Pastors Conference, and John Piper got up and said something to this effect. After hearing William, I'm going to read 20 minutes a day, and I've worked out that that will mean I read 20 books a year, and therefore read 800 to 1,000 in a lifetime. So, are you reading 20 minutes a day? But not just for the book you read. Here's another John Murray story. When I was a youngster, 25, two weeks later, I was going to have my first effort at preaching. And John Murray was in the house, and I said to Mr. Murray, I'm going to preach in two, two weeks. Oh, very good, I'm glad. He said, you know, William, there are three things beginning with the letter P that make the difference between a sermon and a lecture. What are they? And I said, oh, well, you pray. No, you pray about everything. Well, you prepare. No, no, no. Three things that make the difference between a sermon and a lecture. What are they? We went on for a wee while. And he said, it's this. A personal passionate plea I pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God and then he said I go round the world and I hear lectures and they're from books and I know what books they're from because I've read them meditate on these things think on them it's Spurgeon who said too many ministers are working with slender apparatus. 
This should never be. Churches must see to it that ministers are supplied with new books. Take that home to your Kirk session or to your deacons. I'm surprised actually how few books have been sold through there. These books are good value and there's a lot of them left. Don't embarrass me by going home without these books. <laughs> and I meet guys who are always saying, oh man, I'm so much work. I need some help in my ministry. Well, I, I, I'm going to tell you how to get help. You want help in your ministry? I'm sure you do. Well, 26 letters, A, B, C, D. Use the alphabet through the printed page. There was a quote that was coming to me there. It it was um, Basil of Caesarea. I mentioned it after uh, Ligon's mention of prayer. He said, I pray a hundred times a day and almost a hundred times every night. I just read that this week and I passed it to Ligon last night a hundred times a day. So what was he doing? He was praying without ceasing. Now finally a little bit about children. A third of the world's population half of the world's half of the population in the Arab world are under 15. Here's a verse that cuts me up. Have you ever read it? Lamentations 2 verse 19. Take a note of it and read it. Lamentations 2:19 you need to know it. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him. What for? Do you know? You need to know it. For the lives of your children. Who faint for hunger at the head of every street. And they are fainting today. For the word of God. Have you cried in the night for the children of your city? Have you cried in the night for the children of your home, of your congregation, of your family? Children are not the church of tomorrow. They are the church of today. J.K. Rowling, who we referred to earlier, he said this, she said this, the day is fast approaching When the whole world will know the name of Harry Potter. Is that a challenge for you? It certainly is to me. Let the the children come unto me, said Jesus. Now, I don't know how many of you read the Wall Street Journal. How many read the Wall Street Journal? Oh, Doug Kelly reads the Wall Street Journal. It's the investment of these royalties he gets from these books. 
There's very few, but it's still the largest circulation. 2.4 million. Founded in 1889. And I have a quotation from the Wall Street Journal for you. What America needs is a religion that counted it good business to take time for family worship each morning, even in the middle of harvest, and a religion that makes men quit half an hour earlier on Wednesday evening so that the whole family can be together at the prayer meeting. Now, I haven't seen any heads nodding in agreement with that. I'm out of here tomorrow, so you can do what you like. But I think that's important. Every day, with the family. And where are you at the prayer meeting? It's, it's really vexing to me, folks. It's happened in our own country. It's happening all over, well. It's happening in the Western world. Time for prayer. My granddaughter Lydia phoned her granny one day. She had been listening to Sinclair Ferguson's 50-minute sermon. She was four years old and said to her granny, Granny, is your Jesus the real Jesus? Children need to know. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You will teach them to your children and shall talk of them when you sit with them in your house and when you walk by the way. As some of you know, I'm a farmer. It maybe sounds like that when I'm speaking here too, but anyway. I am a farmer still. We have a breeding flock of ewes, about 700 and uh, odd ewes. And at lambing time, there's about 1,500, 14 to 1,500 lambs born. And I visit the lambing shed. And I have one question for the shepherd. Are they drinking? Is there milk for the lambs? If they don't get their mother's milk, they're never the same. They're subject to disease. They don't grow the same. No wonder, Paul says, take heed therefore to yourselves and to all the flock. The children are vitally important. Listen to Joel chapter 1 verse 3. Tell your children what has happened and let your children tell their children and their children and other generations. Well, some are saying, children, they can't take it in. There's a minister friend of mine, his name was John Cahoon, he's now deceased. When he was six years old, he was taught in school the answer to the Westminster Shorter Catechism question, what is effectual calling? Now, I am afraid that if I asked you lot that question, you would not have the answer. 
But he had the answer at six years old. And it led to his conversion. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the Gospel. My mother drilled that into me, and I didn't like being, didn't like it. But she said, William, you'll use it sometime. You'll find it helpful sometime. And my, how helpful the Shorter Catechism is to me. And I don't know if all of you have a Shorter Catechism or not, but you should have. There's one for somebody. (laughs) John Flavel, preaching in Falmouth, finished his service one day by saying, How can I pronounce a blessing on those who reject the free offer of the gospel? Luke Sharp was a teenager in his congregation. He left the next day for America. When he was 96 years old, these words from Flavel came back to him and he spent 10 years in North America witnessing for Christ. Tim Chalice, do you know Tim Chalice, anybody? Yeah, a few of you know Tim Chalice. He's one of the best Christian bloggers. He visited with us in, I think it was October, and I introduced him to my daughter, Catherine. Oh, he said, are you Catherine McKenzie? Yes. Did you write the book, How to Be a Bible Princess? Yes. Oh, he said, I'm glad to meet you. My daughter, 10-year-old, got that book, read it several times, professed her faith, and is now giving that book out to her friends. Please teach the children the doctrines of the faith and the truth about Jesus. Please pray for the children and grandchildren and the children of your congregation. This is the biggest investment the church needs to make today. The biggest investment is not anything else. And can I finish by quoting the Scottish metrical psalm, Psalm 78. His testimony and his law in Israel he did place and charged our fathers it to show to their succeeding race that so the race which was to come might well them learn and know and sons unborn who should arise might to their sons them show. That's four generations. What you're doing can impact and by God's grace will impact children four generations down and more. Remember the children. Somebody asked me this morning, said, you visited Charleston once? And I said, yes, I did. And you met me. And I said, well, it's nice. I'm glad you remember. I afraid I don't. And he said, you told me something about John Stott, how he summarized his sermon. Can you tell me what it is? And I said, yes, I'll do that. And I would just share this with you by way of uh, finishing.
John Stott was always 29, 30 or 31 minutes. He spent a lot of time preparing his first two paragraphs, but more time preparing his last two sentences. He told me that himself. And he was preaching on Ephesians. And he finished his sermon. And he said, it was in all souls, and he said it's like this. Ten fingers. Love God. Love one another. Because he first loved us. Ten fingers. Go. Thank you, brothers.